Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Steve Grundman. I'm the MA and George Lund Fellow for Emerging Defense Challenges here at the Atlanta Council. Um, I am going to master, uh, hopefully master lease, uh, be the master of ceremonies of this event, um, uh, which has a number of moving parts that I'll describe, uh, the most important of which uh, will be a panel discussion among uh, four business, business executives who lead uh, venture capital, uh, venture investing initiatives uh, in their respective aerospace and defense companies. Uh, but the program also, uh, importantly, includes a, a short presentation from Miriam Hock, um, who is the director of research at the National Venture Capital Association that will sort of prime, or maybe even if I may uh, say it, give us a primer in, uh, you know, what is, what is venture investing, what is corporate venture, and how does, uh, how does uh, corporate venture play, at least by the numbers, um, from the aerospace, from and within the aerospace and defense sector. Um, but the first thing I want to do is take the great pleasure of introducing uh, George Lund. Uh, George is the chairman of the private equity firm Torchill Investment Partners. He is also a vice chairman here at the Atlanta Council, member of the board of directors, and not least, uh, the namesake of the fellowship uh, that I hold and of the initiative, uh, the Emerging Defense Challenges Initiative that I run in the Scowcroft Center on International Security. I've asked George if he would uh, make a few uh, welcoming remarks to us uh, before we continue the program. Thanks a lot, George. Thank you, Steve. Uh, great pleasure to be here with all of you, and thank you very much for coming. Um, it, it is great fun to be able to lend your name to uh, something that has a mission that brings together a public policy interest uh, of great importance and, and meshes that with what's going on in the private sector. Uh, this aerospace and defense industry actually is special. Uh, this emerging threats uh, uh, namesake that we pulled together here asked Steve to sort of dive into this nexus of where we try to figure out how our public policy in defense uh, manifests through itself through our private industry and in that in outward facing to the world of, of threats that are out there. Um, this Captains of Industry series has uh, brought some of the uh, most senior leadership in our aerospace and defense industry uh, to this stage to talk about the challenges uh, that, that this world brings and that this industry grapples with all the time. Uh, as somebody in the investment business and even somewhat directly in the venture uh, business, um, you know, I can say that, that the venture capital uh, world uh, can be, uh, you know, sort of likened to uh, threading a needle while riding a bicycle while going down a quite steep grade. And so the people that you're going to talk to here uh, uh, do something that is a somewhat unnatural act because they try to pull that off within the environment uh, of, of quite big companies with very complex and long-term strategic objectives. So. Um, uh, there is a lot of rich experience in front of you uh, today, and uh, uh, I think when you fun come to the question and answer period, uh, there'll be a lot for you to uh, dig into. Um, uh, I think with that, I've sort of said most of, of what I wanted to say. Um, uh, I want to thank Steve for the outstanding leadership he's provided uh, uh, in this uh, role that he's had, and. Uh, with that, I will step aside and let this program begin. Thanks very Thank much, you. George. I appreciate it. 
So um, I will resume with a couple of, of, of more uh, administrative notes. Um, one, I guess, is thematic. Um, uh, several of you in this audience I know were at uh, what I dare say may have been the last event in this series, which was in April, uh, and which was entitled Westward Ho. Uh, I forget the subtitle, but I don't forget the panelists, who were four chief executive officers of small entrepreneurial companies from Silicon Valley, who in different ways were, were themselves and their companies responding to the Secretary of Defense's outreach to Silicon Valley and the Defense Innovation Initiative more generally. This panel discussion, uh, the, the theme of this event, is like that one, but a bookend in, the respect, in, in respect to the fact that um, we're going to talk about how the big and established companies in aerospace and defense fit into that uh, public policy context and, and frankly, a very, a very topical business uh, uh, context, quite apart from the public policy uh, backdrop to it. Um, I, I am compelled uh, to uh, make a couple notes here. Uh, first, the entire event is public and on the record. Uh, and we are live streaming uh, it over our website. So if I call upon you during the Q&A period, and there will be one, certainly by the time we get to about 5.40 this evening, uh, I'll make sure and begin taking questions from the audience. When I call on you, please wait for the microphone. Our staff will bring you a microphone so that the public record can, can recognize who you are and where you're from before you ask your question. Um, uh, moreover, we are tweeting the event. Is this true? We are tweeting the event at, help me, at AC Scowcroft. Uh, we are tweeting this event at AC Scowcroft, and if any of you, I suppose even in this room, let alone those uh, watching on the live stream, would like to, you know, put a question um, into the conversation, you can you can tweet it. Um, uh, Dia, our staff here, um, will bring me the interesting questions, and 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 we can be all 21st century about it that way. Um, finally, uh, the event will conclude sharply at six. So as that our approaches, if we're still involved in, in working our way through a, a series of hands up, um, give, help me out there um, and uh, try when we approach that six o'clock period to get into sort of a lightning round of, uh, of short questions, short, short responses, so that we can actually uh, draw in all of the questions uh, that are uh, resident here in the audience before we have to close at six o'clock. Okay. I, uh, as I, I've alluded to the fact that we're going to start uh, the program uh, with a short presentation by Miriam Hock. Miriam is, as I've said, the, uh, the director, uh, a vice president and uh, uh, director of research at the National Venture Capital Association. Um, one of the things I am not going to do um, is belabor um, each of these panelists' uh, biographies. That's why we uh, hand it out to you, and if you didn't get it, you still could. Um, pieces of paper that have their, their full bios on them. Um, uh, in the interest of time, uh, not because any of them is lacking in, in distinction that I would want to call attention to, but only in the interest of time will we dispense with that. Miriam, I'm very grateful for your coming, and I think this will get uh, the conversation off to an appropriate and uh, fast start. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Steve hounded me or tracked me down last week to, uh, to come present today, so I'm very excited he was able to find me because this topic is very uh, important to NVCA at the National Venture Capital Association, where we focus on a lot of different uh, segments, different sectors, and just understand how venture capital and, and various corporates are intersecting in, in a very interesting time in the venture capital industry. So uh, as Steve alluded to, uh, my name is Miriam. I'm the VP of Research at NVCA. And since I can imagine it's not 
NVCA is not a name that you all uh, probably know given the number of associations that are in this town. Uh, a quick primer on what NVCA is. Uh, we are a Washington-based trade association and essentially we are, serve as the voice for the venture capital industry, meaning the startups and the VC investors that are in the US that are investing in the, the broader entrepreneurial ecosystem. We do this by advocating for obviously policies that are important to investors and startups, uh, convening various groups, including a corporate venture uh, group that we have in our, in our membership, and uh, also advancing the industry through providing data and thought leadership in forums uh, such as this. So I, I don't want to start, I guess, too, uh, too high level, but just to make sure, I guess, we, we're all clear on and what, when we're speaking, or when I'm speaking of venture capital, what I mean. I wanted to kind of walk you through uh, essentially what, what, what we think of when we think of venture capital from the policy side and what I would imagine uh, the panelists today are also thinking of when they think of uh, venture capital. But at the very high level, you know, rock, uh, venture capital is, is really the rocket fuel that powers innovation and entrepreneurship in the U.S. It's, you know, startups that are disrupting industries, services, businesses that exist, and are trying to you know, find new, unique ways to solve for problems. It's really the only, venture capital is really the only industry that creates new industries, again, in this more disruptive manner, this disruptive spirit of, of, of how it operates. And you know, just in the past 10 years, we've had so many new industries crop up uh, from the, uh, just the, the way that the life, uh, the life cycle of venture capital has evolved. And then, of course, if you think of the number of companies in the U.S. or around the world who can trace their roots back to venture capital, I mean, these are really, you know, important, you know, powerful companies that have impacted all of us, you know, whether on a personal consumer level or on a business level, and, uh, you know, truly is, is kind of shows the power of, of venture capital. You know, fun fact, if you look at all of the companies that are public today in the U.S. Uh, and the ones that went public after 1974, 42% of those trace their roots back to venture capital. So there's definitely a, you know, a big uh, sort of venture uh, impact beyond just the industry in terms of the startup, but in terms of the kind of the future pipeline of, of public companies uh, in the US. And actually the five largest companies today in the US by market cap uh, are, were all once venture backed. So just interesting to, to note. So if we go a little bit, dive a little bit deeper into why venture capital is so important for a startup and for a company, if we kind of look at the development of a company, and uh, as time progresses, when it, it company starts from just an idea to where it really, you know, develops a product, grows, matures, and then, you know, is it, kind of a, uh, a well-functioning, revenue-generating company. And we kind of look at the investment that's needed for that company. So, you know, at a very early stage, there are seed and angel investors that are providing capital to startups as you kind of move down the spectrum, you kind of go in from the early stage to the late stage side of things. So these are essentially kind of segments where we have different venture investors that are, are, are deploying capital into startups across every industry. And so who are the investors that are doing this? So it's a range of institutional venture capital firms, some names that you may have heard of, such as Sequoia Capital, Kleiner Perkins, uh, Menlo Ventures, but also uh, corporate venture capital uh, groups play a huge role in this ecosystem, as well as uh, angels, incubators, uh, growth equity groups, uh, also uh, you know just other groups that are more non-traditional in sense that have shown a lot of interest in this industry. Uh, it's a it's become a pretty diverse group of investors. So let's take uh, you know what we kind of know about venture capital and, and and go a bit deeper into corporate venture capital. And corporate venture capital is essentially a type of venture capital, as I just mentioned corporates are, are one of many investors that are investing in the venture ecosystem. 
Uh, corporate venture capital is typically gonna be from a corporation that's investing for non-control equity stake in a company. So that's important to note because you know, this isn't a strategic acquisition. It's a non-controlling stake in more of a, a strategic uh, investment role, which uh, I think the panelists will probably do a much better job of explaining exactly how that works. Uh, also, most corporations are going to be investing off of their balance sheet, so off of the, the parent or the corporate balance sheet. Some of them also will have dedicated funds, but just to note that it's uh, kind of a different model than what a traditional corp uh, what, sorry, what a traditional venture capital fund would be investing through, because those are sort of third-party uh, blind pool pools of fund from institutions such as endowments or foundations, whereas a corporation is really investing off of their either balance sheet or funds directly from their corporation. Uh, and then also, you know, corporate venturing spans all industries. You know, it's not just tech or aerospace and defense. It's healthcare, energy, uh, hardware, media. It's, it's really, you know, anywhere there are large corporations, there is this need to uh, focus on innovation and, uh, and R&D. And, and we'll get to that in a moment. But that's, um, you know, important to note that it does span all, uh, all industries and pretty much all uh, investment stages. So if we look at what are some of the benefits for corporations when they are investing in startups. So I think the two big ones here are strategic value for a corporation and financial returns. And different corporations kind of operate differently in that one might be a little bit more important than the other. Some are equally as important. But uh, you know, in terms of the investment, it is an investment of capital for an equity uh, stake in a company. So there is the inherent idea that that equity stake will return some sort of capital back to their uh, to the corporation or for, from the investment. Also, the strategic value is huge in terms of uh, companies needing to innovate and stay kind of relevant with all of the startups that are disrupting different segments, you know, whether this is an uh, R&D pipeline or it's just a way for the corporate to uh, partner, create partnerships or look at building their core business or looking at new businesses. It's really more of a strategic sense or a strategic lens for them to get industry trends and insights or even think about um, a potential uh, pipeline of M&A or expand to new markets, whether that's different segments uh, in terms of different uh, sector segments or adjacent segments or even geographic uh, expansion. And then for the startup, uh, what's really helpful or, or kind of what the value is that the startup receives from a corporate investment is obviously there is the, the capital. That's very important, you know, this risk capital for a company at a very, very early stage. But corporates also provide uh, strategic guidance that's in some ways unique than what a traditional or institutional VC might provide, just given that the corporate is going to have more, probably better, a better, uh, better, be a, bit, be a better resource in terms of, you know, partnerships or manufacturing or getting a better sense for the competition in a certain market. Uh, also, resources that come with the corporation are huge. I mean, it, you know, most VC firms have, you know, I would say maybe not more than a staff of a 10, whereas you think about large corporations, that's, you know, it's 20 times that. Uh, also, introductions to uh, other investors are very important for startups, and then also the technical expertise that comes from some of these corporates uh, or these larger corporations and their broader networks, I think, is, can be hugely valuable for, for startups. So, I hopefully set a good uh, stage in terms of, you know, what venture capital is, what corporate venture capital is, and why it's important. And so I'm going to dive into a couple of stats that will give you a sense for just quantifying, I guess, the venture capital and the corporate venture capital industry. And then I'll dive into aerospace and defense uh, sector specifically. So this is uh, all venture capital in the U.S. over the past uh, 10, uh, 10, 11 years. 
And uh, the blue bar here is the capital that's been invested into the industry, and the yellow bar is the number of deals that have been done. And you can see a, a steady increase uh, since about 2010. Uh, in 2015, we hit a 10-year high. 2016 is on pace to probably be uh, second, right behind 2015. Obviously, those two years are going to be behind where you know we were in 2000 in the dot-com uh, dot era. But what's uh, interesting, or just to give you shed some light on what's happening as we've been seeing this increase is on the deal count side, we're seeing more sort of micro VCs and angels uh, and early stage companies coming into the, the venture capital space. But on the uh, investment capital side, we're seeing large investments into late stage companies, as well as some non-traditional investors that I mentioned earlier that have been more active in this space. And then also a lot of this has become come from corporate venture capital, a lot more interest in the venture capital space from corporates across the spectrum. And so if we look solely at the corporate venture uh, capital activity, so this is looking at um, you know, solely the number of deals done where there was a corporate involved, and then the capital amount uh, here at the blue bar is actually taking for, all, for any deal with a corporate the total round amount for that, that round. So it's not actually just isolating the corporate amount, it's actually the, the total round amount, but it's only four rounds that had a corporate uh, included. And you see it's kind of increased in a parallel manner to what the overall VC industry has seen. And in 2015 and 2016, corporates have actually participated in 13% of all venture capital deals. Uh, and actually since 2012, we've seen 1,700 unique corporates invest in at least one deal. So it's a huge kind of seg segment of the venture, broader venture capital space that's definitely getting a lot of interest. You know, it's a number of players that are established that have been in this market for a while, such as, you know, the Intel capitals of the world to some that have become very popular, not popular, but I guess more active recently or in the past, you know, five or 10 years, um, such as like Google Ventures or Salesforce Ventures. And then actually we're hearing, you know, almost every week now of new corporate arms being uh, created from ones like JetBlue to uh, Campbell Soup and even Sesame Street has launched a venture fund. So it's, it's a pretty wide, uh, wide space of, of activity from the corporate side. So where are corporates uh, act investing in terms of the sectors? So I guess you can kind of see here immediately, it's pretty much all sectors that corporates are active in, but the software sector is really where it's kind of led the, the interest from uh, from corporate uh, venturing groups. And interestingly, the, uh, the aerospace and defense data, which we're gonna get to in a second, it's, uh, it kind of overlays a couple of these sectors uh, in terms of it you know, could be some, somewhat related to software or uh, it's gonna be uh, included in the other uh, section here. But I just wanted to, again, kind of give a foundation of you know, broadly where are corps uh, very active in or where they continue to be active in in the venture space. So now we're going to focus uh, specifically on the aerospace and defense uh, sector. Uh, again, this um, data is actually, I forgot to mention, this data is actually be coming from PitchBook. So if you are curious, happy to talk about that, but we just wanted to clarify that this is uh, all being sourced to, to PitchBook. Uh, so if you look at just the aerospace and defense VC activity, uh, we, we, we kind of see that um, there has been you know, a steady increase since, since 2012. Actually, since 2012, $1.5 billion have been deployed into about 220 VC deals. Uh, you'll see the spike here in uh, 2015, and I'm gonna just uh, note a couple of, of large investments that happened here because I'm sure you're wondering, you know, what happened in 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 2015. So uh, two notable deals I would say from 2015. One of them actually, the largest deal had 
a corporate uh, had corporate participation. It was for a deal called um, for a company called Planet Labs. So they're a developer of satellites uh, for monitoring and communication purposes. So they raised 131 million dollars. So that's you know a, a chunk of that that five um, five fifty or something over there. Uh, also, another deal was called Icon a Aircraft, a $100 million investment. That one didn't have any corporates, but that's also a huge chunk of that, that piece there, and they're a manufacturer of uh, light, sports, uh, light sport aircrafts. And then in uh, 2016, you'll see we're on track to, to do, uh, do pretty well. Uh, two large deals that happened so far in 2016 are Airwave, which develops hardware and software for commercial drones, and uh, Enlight, which uh, does laser fiber, sorry, fiber lasers for um, various industries, uh, including defense. And so uh, now if we look at just the corporate venture investment in the aerospace and defense uh, segment, uh, we'll see it's definitely picked up since 2012. Uh, it, it's, again, in a similar manner, kind of spiked in 2015. One of the reasons behind that was uh, also that Planet Labs deal. Uh, another deal that uh, is, is a large deal from 2015 is 3D Robotics, which uh, develops smart um, aerial drones. So since 2012, so in the past five years, about half a billion dollars has been invested in about 30 uh, aerospace and defense corporate deals. And I will say that this is probably a lower estimate in terms of what the activity that's actually happening from a conversation earlier with today with Chris, who's going to be on the panel. I think a lot of the, some of the deals in the space do get underreported. So I would say this is probably a low estimate in terms of the activity uh, that's actually uh, happening. So just to, um, I guess, juxtapose this graph with the one I just showed, and you want to see maybe what percentage corporates are of all of venture, uh, here we see that uh, corporates make up about 15% of the VC deals in this uh, space. It's a bit lower than it was, you'll see, from like 2006 and 2007, but you may remember that the denominator here got larger in terms of there are just more deals happening in, in, the, uh, in, in the segment. And we are seeing, I think, more institutional and traditional VCs uh, see opportunities uh, in this space. So it's exciting to see, and I think um, those two forces kind of complement each other well, and I'm excited to hear what the panelists uh, say or have to say about uh, about some of these trends, but I will be sharing a copy or uh, Steve and team will be sharing a copy of the presentation Tomorrow, I think yeah. we'll have it on the website together with the summary of this event if you'd like to uh, download it Yeah, um, that was just perfect really gets us all up on on the step Maybe the second step of the whole topic um, before Miriam sits down. Are there any questions about the presentation? Seeing none Thank you very, very much. And I would now ask the panel, uh, please, to come join me on the stage. Uh, take your seat. Yes, thank you. See, I told you. Oh, those names. Right. Well, do I get to go last? I want to go last. All right, if you'd like to. Oh, but I can't. Right here. Terrific. Um, I've asked each of the panelists, uh, whom I will uh, introduce uh, ever, ever so briefly in turn, to, to, to start by giving us a, a few minutes of orientation to their companies, their, their uh, to some degree, I, I suspect, filling in um, their particular uh, answer to the sort of, uh, uh, of uh, questions and, 
and motivations and structures and other things that, that Miriam did such a, a great job of outlining for us, just to uh, get us all oriented to what we're talking about here and, and where everybody's coming from. And then we uh, perhaps will dive in a little bit deeper. Um, I will, I'll go just like this. No, is that okay, Brett? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Brett? Yeah, 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 all right. Yeah. We'll, we'll go right uh, left to right. Um, I will simply start uh, by uh, mentioning that uh, Thomas Dalouin is the uh, Chief Executive Officer at U.S. Venture Investments Airbus. And again, while I'm not going to read um, his biography, it's available to you. Having said that, I also uh, have invited each of the gentlemen, really encouraged them to say a little bit something about how you got to this point um, and, you know, kind of what your personal um, venture uh, to uh, being involved in corporate venture in aerospace and defense is. Um, at the beginning or end of, of, of your introduction, but include Good. that, please, Thomas. Okay. Thank you. Get us started. Excellent. So thank you, first of all, Steve, for very welcome. inviting us. And, and I'm, I'm feeling very humbled uh, just sitting here uh, with my colleagues. I mean, a lot of experience in the aerospace and defense sector. So here, uh, we want to talk about corporate venturing, right? So um, giving a bit of taste of why Abus Group, as a company, uh, decided to set up venture. Um, so I think it, it has to come back to kind of the roots of Abus Group. Um, as a company, as a mothership itself. I think back in the 60s and 70s, actually, Abus Group was just a startup. It was a small company, it was a bunch of people uh, with a dream, kind of a concept that somehow in Europe, uh, we could build something in aerospace and defense that could be greater uh, than, than the sum of its parts, right? So it was back in the 60s, trying to challenge the establishment, the US establishment, mm -hmm. so uh, the, the, <coughs> the players. Um, and very well-established players trying to be disruptive. Uh, so basically, the startup mindset was part of the DNA of, of the company very early on. And then we moved from this like very startup uh, um, stage to a company that grow, that make one product, a portfolio of product, expand, go outside of Europe, leverage the collective intelligence, and, and ultimately ended up being a global player in aerospace and defense, 140,000 employees present in all segments of the, of, the, of the landscape, but not losing this kind of part of our own DNA uh, about, about startups and, and, uh, and disruption. I think we want to stay connected to that, to that ecosystem, to that grid. So that's probably one of the first arguments that pushed us to, to move to venture capital. Um, the second reason, and, and I mean, Mariam, you, you did a, a fantastic presentation, but you did not mention the location <coughs> for the investment. I think if you look at the 80 billion you mentioned in the US, I think roughly two thirds of this 80 billion are invested in Silicon Valley. And that's a fact, right? I would be happy it would be more diverse, but the fact is Silicon Valley is kind of the heart of, of venture capital. There's a density of activity there, a density of player, of talent, of money. Um, so for us, mothership sitting in Europe, looking at the far east, looking at the far west, we had to be global, so we had to be in Silicon Valley. So trying to be in Silicon Valley, I mean, will take time. I mean, it's just a very, very early uh, stage for us. But we'll see over time if we can play, uh, let's call it a role, in that very specific ecosystem. Um, but Silicon Valley was kind of a very, very uh, uh, targeted focus for us. And finally, um, <coughs> I would go to, to a very last reason. And it's a, bit, it's a bit about the dynamic of teaching and learning whenever you engage with startups. Um, so if I, if I use my, my native language, French, we would translate teach and learn by the very same verb, which is apprendre. Uh, the subtlety of the English language make it a difference whenever you teach something or you learn. The French would couple the two 
because they see that as, as the two sides of the same coin. So for a corporate like us, back to the roots of a small startup having grown up and having scaled, we want to share that experience of scaling back to the startup. But in return, there's this notion of trying to learn a bit of a different angle on some of the global challenges we're facing. <coughs> so um, again, the idea of a uh, venture vehicle was kind of trying to answer all of those questions. So Navi, having said that, like answering the why we are on the venture stage, um, let me give you a few, few elements of what we do and how we do that. So Airbus Ventures is actually an independent venture fund. So to the uh, classification Mariam um, explained earlier, so we tend to see the world of venture capital and corporate venture capital, right? Um, I think we sit pretty much in between, right? We sit um, in between the ecosystem of startup, very close to them, and, and the mothership and the experience and the expertise of half a century of aerospace and defense challenges. Um, so we are set uh, as an independent structure, which means for us, we have the possibility to decide and operate freely and make an investment within days if we want, which is very, very unusual for corporates to get that level of autonomy. And well, there's no free lunch, right? So if we, if we make this greater speed of execution as a main driver, we also had to give up a bit of the strategic content. I mean, you mentioned um, um, what we can bring to the startup and indeed corporate venturing usually bring a complete menu of strategic options, like partnership, IP, licensing, access to facilities, contribution in kind, <clears throat> but it takes time. If you want to develop that with a startup, it takes time. It takes not weeks, it takes months. So if you want to trade that and against a bit of like the speed of execution, uh, well, you cannot promise to any of the startup that they will have whatever they want out of Airbus. The only thing we try to do is to, to promise access to the mothership, but we do not guarantee outcomes, right? So the idea that we'll sit next to the portfolio company, helping them to grow, to scale, sharing a bit of that DNA that Airbus Group has given us, but at the same time uh, um, operating at the speed of Silicon Valley and the speed of startup was kind of the main driver of our, uh, of our vehicle. So, Again, the, what is a bit different in the traditional classification is we, we literally sit in between using a fund, an independent fund, an autonomy of decision to, to try to cope and, 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 and manage uh, the pace of innovation and disruption. So in a few great. words, in a few minutes, that's a bit what, what is Abazenture. Right. That's, that's great, although I have, I have one uh, particular question for you before we, we, we proceed down the line, and that is a number of the people in the room will be familiar with or aware of A3. A-Cube, yes. How does no A-Cube fit into the, 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 the realm of, of, of what Airbus is doing in Silicon Valley? And, and even tell the rest who don't know what it is, sure. what I'm talking about. So I'm not a representative of A-Cube, so right. I will not make the official communication for them, but uh, what I can say is we, well, we do have the same father, Tom Anders, the mm -hmm. CEO of, of Airbus Group. Uh, that was part of this vision. I said we, we wanted to be present in the Silicon Valley uh, ecosystem, and that's a very complex ecosystem. So venture is just one part of this ecosystem. There's a lot of university, there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of implication of public and, and, and private money, uh, both coupled and blended. So A-Cube is actually sitting in like the traditional innovation stream, 
uh, with a bit of a disruptive unit, uh, a DARPA-like or Google X-like type of, uh, of, uh, of structure that is actually doing stuff, like doing project and doing initiative when Abbas Venture is investing into entrepreneurs, <coughs> external ideas, external concepts. So yes, it is complementary. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do work together, but we have two different mandates while having the same father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, thank you. Uh, that, that fills out the portrait. Uh, Brett Lambert. Brett Lambert is the Vice President of Corporate Strategy at Northrop Grumman Corporation, uh, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy. Brett, Should tell us about Northrop Grumman's play in corporate venture. So we have a, a bit of a different uh, take than my, my colleagues up here, and, uh, you know, it'll... Uh, over the next few years, we'll, we'll figure out um, what's been more effective for the customer, which in our case is warfighters and taxpayers. Uh, uh, we, uh, the history of Northrop is a conglomeration of a whole bunch of different companies, Northrop Grumman. TR Ventures was the last uh, official, in, in, uh, in your words, the official venture fund we had, which was run by, as it happens, our current CEO, Wes Bush, uh, when he was out in California. Uh, when I was in the government, we uh, uh, looked at a bunch of different models for um, uh, trying to exercise the innovation and, and, and motivate the innovation of commercial technologies a lot in Silicon Valley, but not necessarily in Silicon Valley, and to try to figure out how to incorporate those into uh, the defense operating base. And so what you've seen, I think, over the last few years is a, a maturation of, of uh, frankly, cries from help uh, from the customer. Uh, big companies, uh, which uh, we all represent, uh, people have heard me say this before, it's, uh, we're the dinosaurs and, and uh, they tend to knit sweaters and when they, they feel it's getting colder they try to applique and, and obviously the department is looking for feathers. Uh, they're looking for innovative companies that can get product uh, and, and can keep the pace of innovation going, get product to the warfighter as quickly and efficiently as possible. So when we look at uh, efforts like DIUX and some of the other innovative uh, uh, projects that are out there, we really view it as a, a, as a cry for help uh, and a legitimate cry for help. So we've taken a, a bit of a different approach. We don't have a fund, uh, but we are looking at models that uh, what I call ingestion is how do you take the best of innovation uh, that's out there in the commercial marketplace and you can run the R&D numbers and whether it's synthetic biology or across the board, a lot more uh, money going into commercial products. How do you access or tap into those uh, capabilities and ingest them into the products and capabilities that the warfighter is, is, is crying out for and is obviously clear in all the documentation that's come out. And the reason I think when you, uh, when you look at startups, particularly in Silicon Valley, but elsewhere, it, you know, the, um, uh, the ability for them to, to get into the defense cycle, let alone their willingness, let's assume they're willing to do that, but to, uh, to innovate and to get through the bureaucracy, uh, I think that's where the real challenge comes. And frankly, that's where we think um, large uh, players in the defense industry can be of assistance in, in both identifying and then bringing them through the channel. So uh, dealing with the IP, dealing with the uh, cost accounting, all of the stuff that makes people not want to sell to the Department of Defense or any government agency. Uh, 
So how do you identify them, perhaps invest in them and uh, take a minority stake, but at least give them an <coughs> avenue to service the customer? On the other side, the customer is a little leery uh, when it gets down, you know, speeches aside, when it gets right down to it, they're worried that these startups won't be around for the long haul. They won't be there for 10 or 20 years. Uh, the dinosaurs are still going to be there for a while. So our model is uh, uh, we're, we're working at identification and ingestion of commercial capabilities, commercial investments into uh, products uh, that then we can help service and, and remove the burden for the startups of the, the cost accounting, the IP uh, issues, let the companies who do best with that kind of, um, uh, that kind of difficulty, let them handle uh, uh, that part of the equation and then uh, commit to the customer <coughs> that we're going to be around to service and support the, uh, support the endeavors over time. So okay. our ingestion model is not a fund. It's a, it is a fund because it comes from corporate coffers like everyone else, uh, but it, uh, it comes from when we can identify a capability and ingest it into a product that we're, we're, we're committed to service the customer on. One, one more time, what was the name of the, I think it was a TRW ent entity that, that sort of, that West goes back TRW to? TRW Ventures. TRW Ventures. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, right, that's uh, quite successful. Uh, it was um, back early, early part of the aughts, I think. Yep, uh, late uh, 90s, 90, early 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a technology that ended, I think, ended up as a critical feature of cell phones. Many. Uh, uh, and, and, and many other things. Yeah. That yeah. apparently they did not get the right IP for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to do that part right, yes. too. Yes, <laughs> right. right. Very good. Uh, Chris Moran is the Executive Director and General Manager of Lockheed Martin Ventures. Uh, Chris is based out in Silicon Valley. Thanks very much for making your way across, uh, as is Thomas, um, uh, the, the, the continent. Uh, please, orient us to Lockheed Martin Ventures. Let's orient you to me first. How about that? Excuse me? Because uh, I've only yes. been... Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I've That's right. You two dodged oh, yeah. that. So yeah, we'll come right. back. We'll I come think, back on I think that. these guys can orient me better to Lockheed Martin Ventures than I can. I've only been with Lockheed for uh, four months. So I, I'm just learning that this massive corporation. Uh, my history is I spent, and, and am, still living in Silicon Valley. I've been there 30 years. I uh, was at a company called Applied Materials for 32 years in various roles, 10 years of which I ran the venture fund, started and ran the venture fund at Applied Materials. And that's how I ended up here. The people I worked with there uh, found their way to Lockheed Martin, and they wanted me to do the same thing. Despite uh, the connotation Martin. of the name, Applied Materials is a semiconductor Yeah, semiconductor firm. equipment uh, firm. So I, I've been in Silicon Valley basically my <coughs> entire career and, and living in that environment. And, and Lockheed wanted to have, as, as you yeah. both had said, wanted to have a presence out there. Now, Lockheed yeah. does have about 5,000 people, I believe, in, in Sunnyvale, Silicon mm -hmm. Valley area. So it's not like we're absent, but we never had a, a specific venturing activity there to tap into the, the ecosystem of venture that Thomas elegantly spoke about. And I think that's uh, the part of what, what I'm trying to do is exactly what they're saying, is look for external technologies, figure out how they can indeed complement programs that we have or programs that we can create, uh, but use the effective ecosystem of Silicon Valley to do that. And so Lockheed Martin has had a venture fund in one way or another, I've learned recently since the, the mid 80s, believe it or not. Uh, the most recent reincarnation was in 2007 when it was called the Emerging Technology Fund and now we've renamed it Lockheed Martin Ventures. Uh, but the focus that I'm trying to bring to it is sort of shift or reshape uh, the focus a little bit 
and try to move outside of this direct kind of defense procurement sort of activity that, that they've been in, looking at later stage technologies, how can we bring them directly into programs, and trying to look at more of this vast environment of things that go on out there, the ecosystem with the venture capitalists, the technology startups, and so on, and start looking earlier at technologies that maybe not only uh, fit into programs already going, but could be the catalyst for programs yet to come. And I think that's where the real value is, because I'm, I'm not going to be able to tell the thousands of Lockheed Fellows, you know, that you're doing the wrong thing or anything like that. But I can certainly uh, show up with a, with a market basket of technologies and capabilities that allow them to pick and choose and watch the creative juices flow in their minds about how they can apply some of these technologies into the, the systems and programs that they're working on. So my uh, operational uh, uh, mode is to have a very close relationship with the various business units. Uh, we have regular discussions, meetings. Basically, I want them to tell me their problems. And then, you know, my, my skill is to kind of <clears throat> connect the dots between a problem and potential solutions, bring those back into the corporation, find out their level of interest, and then we'll dig in deep and do diligence on companies to make the investment. And we'll invest for all the reasons that Marion uh, talked about, Thomas uh, talked about as well. Uh, with the ultimate goal of, of getting access to that technology, usually through a license or a partnership. Um, Lockheed hasn't bought any of, their, um, any of the companies they've invested in uh, to date, uh, but in my old firm, we, we bought uh, several of the companies that were in there. So that's a, an exit strategy as well for those companies. So, so a little bit of a shift, trying to look out to the much earlier stage to give us a, a much bigger uh, Lockheed loves to use the term aperture, so much bigger aperture on the opportunities that we look at, uh, but also figuring out how to bring those in, as, as you so elegantly talked about. How do you get the company to be interested in the defense space? How do you get the company uh, to want to operate in that space? And how do we provide, uh, for an engineering term, an impedance match between the commercial industry and the defense industry? And that is uh, a recipe I'm still figuring out. It's only been four months, so I've got a couple. They gave me one more month <laughs> to figure that out. So uh, anyway, that's, that's our focus right okay. now. Excellent. Uh, that's, that's perfect. Thank you. Pete Roney. Uh, Pete is the Vice President for Innovation and the Managing Director of Explore at Talis Group. Um, Pete's based in Boston, I happen to know. Uh, but go ahead and pick up from how'd you get into this uh, seat at, at Talis, and then I'll come back to you other two gentlemen here. Sure. Okay. Uh, well, first, thanks, Steve, for having us here. Welcome. And uh, uh, real quick, a little vignette. Uh, I do these things from time to time, and and it's it's funny when you walk around the United States and people ask what company you're from, and you say, and, and they or they see your name card or something, and they say, oh, you're with Thales. <laughs> Immediately know that you've never done business with me. And <laughs> and about a year ago, um, I was at one of these things in a, in a room was about three times the size, and. And so I wanted to test the hypothesis, so I got up there, and the first thing I said is, well, by a show of hands, who's actually uh, heard of Talus? And exactly one person raised her hand. <laughs> and, I, and I had to point this out This room her, can do way better well, than that. I had that. to point I it out to her you. in front of the whole group that that wasn't fair because we had had lunch together about an hour before. <laughs> and so um, the reality is that many of you, I'm going to guess, have not heard of Talus, and, uh, and that's, that's unfortunately common across the United States. And so one of my missions in life is to help spread the good word. Um, uh, so why don't I give you just a very quick sense about Talus, and then I can tell you a little bit more about me and what we're doing with Explore. For, for many of you, you do know Talus, but Talus is a, uh, is a global conglomerate that serves both commercial and, and defense and, and uh, aerospace applications. We do things like uh, securing a very large portion of the world's financial transactions. We're uh, second in the world in in-flight entertainment. 
Uh, we handle large, obviously, like the rest of these guys, command and control information systems for, for militaries and governments around the world, avionics, commercial <coughs> and military, space systems, transportation rail signaling systems. Uh, Cybersecurity is an area that we're, we're spending a lot of time these days. So the company is about 70,000 employees and, and truly global. Uh, in the world, though, uh, while you might say on the surface we're the ninth largest defense contractor, in the United States we're sort of the blip on the blip on the blip at the end of the radar. I mean, we are nobody here. And please don't quote me on that one exactly, but... It's um, going out on the web. Yeah, Bob goes back there taking done. notes, and that's going to show up in the journal cover tomorrow. But, but, um, but, but really, so Talos is, uh, is, is a large, significant company in the global aerospace defense market. But in the United States, we... How much sales, just to put it in full perspective? Uh, ballpark global. 15 billion euro. 15 billion. In that neighborhood. Not a small company. So, um, uh, but when you, if you go back now, roughly three years ago, uh, we had a then chairman, Jean-Bernard Levy, and now followed by Patrice <coughs> Kane. And Jean-Bernard sort of looked at Talos and said, you know, wow, growth has stalled. I wonder why that is, and, and took a very deep look at what had happened. And, and what he recognized is that the entrepreneurial and the innovative spirit had sort of gone dormant, which I'll take a risk here and, and, and might say that that's happened to some others as well in cases. And so, and so he challenged a lot of us to figure out new ways to, to bring it back. And one of those that we identified was we really have to figure out a way to touch this startup world uh, because they happen to be doing some pre pretty creative things that, uh, that, that can become a problem for us, like SpaceX, for example, uh, and others. And so uh, we, we thought then, of course, where are we going to do this? And so if you look at just the sheer number of patents and startups coming out of the world, uh, the United States is, of course, Mecca. So here we are. Uh, we, we decided that we would either pick uh, Silicon Valley or Boston. Why uh, Boston over Silicon Valley? Uh, to be quite honest, it was because of cost. Dallas um, is somewhat conservative when it comes to cost management. And so, uh, so we picked Boston over Silicon Valley, uh, but I will come back to that point a little bit later. And, and, our, and our mission there is, has been and continues to be to find new and disruptive uh, technologies and business models or services that uh, can either be complementary or disruptive to our own business and look to partner with them in, in creative and novel ways. We, are, uh, we set up Explore to be somewhat a unit on the edge of the, uh, of the, of, of the boundaries of Talus to, to allow it to have some freedom. If, shocker here, we have some processes that stifle freedom every once in a while. Um, and so, so Explore sits on the edge to, uh, to sometimes get around those and, and come up with novel ways to partner with businesses and bring new things to the market. Uh, the way we do that is through a, a various, group of, uh, <laughs> various group of means. We, we, like others here, don't have a dedicated fund, although you might see that change in the not-so-distant future. Um, but we do have a, a, a fairly robust operating budget that allows us to be flexible in the ways that we partner with various businesses. And by partner, what I mean is, is um, we have a concept in mind, for example, and we will find startups that help us fill gaps in our own portfolio that, that round out the technology or the market access that we need to bring that concept to life. And for, in, those, in those circumstances, we will, <coughs> quote, invest uh, in the business, and, and it might be an investment in a technology or an investment um, of others' forms, but the whole goal being delivering a particular concept to the market. 
Uh, and a couple of examples, just real quickly, uh, we, uh, our first big project was we took a military avionics helmet-mounted dis helmet display and we made a neurosurgery product out of that called Dragonfly. Uh, so we're here to talk about largely defense and, and I, I think what you'll find in Talus is that because our, our group is so, uh, so pretty much evenly split between defense and other commercial applications, we tend to take a pretty big, uh, use a pretty big lens when we think about how we deploy our capital when it comes to this stuff. With the view, though, in the long term, that a lot of these technologies that we're working on can bounce back into our core markets if necessary. Uh, personally, for me, just uh, by way of background, I, I started off in the defense community as a, uh, as a military officer myself, uh, and then worked my way through the, the defense establishment in uh, both uh, industry with General Dynamics uh, and then other forms, management consulting with Renaissance Strategic Advisors, who I see well represented here, um, and now with Talis. So, okay, excellent. Um, as as promised, uh, let me just uh, come back once uh, to Thomas and, and Brett for uh, how you got uh, how you got into corporate venture. Right. So, well, I was trained as an aerospace engineer, and I've spent the last fifteen years within within Airbus Group. So, I've seen, I mean, on one very bright side, the beauty of like this collective intelligence coming together and building products from like various cultures, different size of players, all together on that kind of endeavor. But also the rise of complexity and the, a bit of the loss of this uh, ability to be agile and nimble, um, especially when I went to, uh, to China. I was based uh, out of Shanghai. And the pace of change, the pace of innovation that you can feel just walking in the street in Shanghai is just mind-blowing. Hmm. So the combination of that plus I was very close to the product move afterwards to finance as a chief of staff to the CFO. If you do the combination of manufacturing, finance, and a bit of that quest uh, towards agility and nimbleness, you end up in ventures. So yep. that's pretty much the path. So yep. Good. Brett, I've, I've given away a little bit of your background, yeah, but I am really that right. eloquent. Uh, so I had a, uh, worked on a, uh, with a consulting firm, uh, which is, was called DFI at the time. It's now the corporate side is Avicent. We sold the government side to uh, Dedica in the UK and back in 2007. But over about the 15 years uh, I was doing uh, management <coughs> consulting, it was mostly for either the big uh, dinosaurs or small entrepreneurial firms that were trying to become dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and then after that transaction, I served on a couple of technology boards and then went into the government, as you said, in 2009, left in 13, and then went back on some entrepreneurial boards um, and some uh, larger corporation boards, and then w uh, was asked to join uh, Northrop as the head of strategy and to kind of think through all of these I mean, we, I, when I was in government, I, I have to say I was very taken by a lot of the companies that would come in to see us. These were the SpaceX's and the Palantir's and everyone else. And just how hard it was for them uh, to break through uh, the, uh, the bureaucracy, the, the, the walls that they, and, and really frustrating. I saw a lot of great companies that could have added a lot of benefit to the warfighters walk away from mm -hmm. the department. Uh, only because of the structural impediments, not because of the technology innovation capabilities, the integration part. And 
so you know, as the department tried to mature with, through rapid equipping, which I think was a, is, is a beautiful example of how, okay, you've got 12 months to get something to the field, that actually helped, and it, it started to train institutional memory inside the department uh, of how quickly you could go if you were allowed to go that fast. And so at Northrop Grumman, it's one of the things I'm, we're working on is, that, you know, how do you take that entrepreneurial spirit and get it into the hands quickly of the warfighter and, and take the burden off of these you know, entrepreneurial companies who have a lot of investment, some of them already been venture backed, um, take the burden of, of dealing with the Department of Defense or any government agency, remove that burden from them so they can actually do what they are incentivized to do and yeah. what what their passion is. Yeah. So. There's, a, there's a thread here that I'd forgotten goes all the way back to DFI, actually. Yeah. Um, each of you uh, has made reference to your chief executive officer. Um, and I happen to know each of your chief executive officers. These, these are not, these are not um, uh, incidental sideline initiatives that each of you represents. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, or just take a pass when I come to you if I'm wrong. Um, I'm interested. I think the audience would be interested in how involved in and what, what's the what's the sort of corporate strategic from the chief executive officer's uh, desk uh, in, interest in that wasn't a full English sentence but what's it, what, tell us about your CEO's interest in this initiative uh, let's keep the baton going and start with Chris okay. um, two weeks into my my tenure at Lockheed Martin I had to have a face to face with with Marilyn Houston and uh, Bruce Tanner the CFO and you know as my so my my <coughs> had two weeks to get my concept of operations together and present all of two that weeks. to them. So all of yeah. two weeks. Great. Um, talked to a lot of people to get to that point. But the, the feeling and the people who were briefing me on the discussion with her is that, you know, the company is so intensely focused on innovation. And, and honestly, even though we may be a dinosaur in your terminology, uh, you couldn't be uh, last that long if you weren't incredibly innovative. And the company is astoundingly innovative. Every, everything I see you know the things that you say. Oh, I wish we did that. Well, they they're doing that. You know, mm -hmm. um, but the but the uh, the intensity, the pace. I think the rationalization of government spending and the slowdown in certain areas. They see that the commercial space is going to have to offset that to some degree. And I think everyone and the and the comments from Ash Carter and so on indicate that you know you've got to look to the commercial space. Uh, for those markets to rapidly develop some of the technologies you're looking at and try to figure out as best as possible how to bring them into the defense space. So that goes all the way up to the top of the company. They don't want to miss out on anything, and they look at this as just another, another tool to use uh, to enable them to do that. But at least in, in the case of Lockheed Martin, and each of you uh, respectively might comment upon this uh, on your way around, um, there is some uh, impetus from the sector's outreach and innovation initiative to the, oh, yeah, the formation or the elevation absolutely. now of, of this initiative. Well, but like I said, Lockheed Martin has had this for, for quite a while, but I, I think there's an, a new intensity mm -hmm. at it. And, and we don't look at what you know they're doing or DIOX is doing as competitive. Actually, I've met with them several times and sure. we view it as complementary mm -hmm. uh, to them, right? Because at some point, these small companies have to figure out how to provide you know thousands of widgets, not right. not the few that that may come from those activities. So they're going to have to work with one of our companies probably to to commercial or not commercialize it to move it into the defense space. Yeah, and, and I'm going to right after this, I'm going to come back to the question of how you look right. and the sector looks from the perspective of the entrepreneurs that you sure. engage with. But Pete, your CEO's uh, yeah, sure. uh, stamp on this initiative, sure. please. So uh, so in the beginning, uh, clearly uh, our, our former chairman had a, a pretty significant stamp on this, and now Patrice Kane, who's our current sitting. Uh, chairman and CEO uh, views Explore as, as I think you've already said as a, a tool in the toolkit 
for the broader in innovation and, and uh, digital transformation initiatives that we have going on. Uh, and to put a bigger point on that, uh, uh, Patrice has laid out a, a vision for uh, the digital transformation of Talus. It's an overly used buzzword, I know, but uh, it really does mean something for Talus. We're over 100 years old, and, and to evolve to stay competitive with a lot of the businesses that are now starting to uh, step into our markets, we have, to, we have to change the way we do things, both internally and how we work with our customers. And so uh, in this particular case, Explore has a, a proverbial seat at the table when it comes to the digital transformation office that's helping to shape the future of, of where Talus is going um, in this new economy. And, and so, therefore, the projects that we, we bring forward uh, tend to be fairly high, high visibility projects. And, and oftentimes, um, the blessing and the funding for these types of endeavors comes directly from, uh, from Patrice or the CFO. Okay. Uh, Thomas, my uh, uh, awareness of Tom Enders is um, uh, uh, interest in this arises not least from the number of times he is he is said to pass through Silicon Valley uh, for the chief executive of a uh, global aerospace company. It's quite striking. I, I, I think he's hardly a stranger to your offices. Definitely. I mean, Tom Enders is very connected to Silicon Valley, to the U.S. in general, but to mm -hmm. Silicon Valley. Um, but I have to say, when you set up an independent fund, it has to come from the top. I mean, it's mm. a non-natural move for corporates to right. give up control and say, guys, here's money, here's a playground, play, spend the money, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's, a, it's a very bold move, and it was, uh, so it was Tom, Tom Signature, <coughs> so he's, he's the architect of venture together with the CFO. So that's kind of the good combination, because yeah. you need the money, not just the power, right? So, because right. the power without the right envelope would not make any difference, mm -hmm. but the combination of Harald Willem, the CFO, and Tom Andrews, uh, literally sending the impulse, and at the same time kind of defining uh, a bit of the boundaries and the limit of the game and the playground by sending a bit of some financial and business boundaries through the investment thesis. So yes, we do invest in things that are strategically relevant, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's our mandate. But when you've said that, it's so open to us that it's enough to be free and operate. So, and again, it has to come from the top um, if you want to set up that as an independent structure. And uh, you've nearly said, but let me get a point on it, and you're supposed to make money. You're supposed to generate a return. Exactly. And usually in the classical kind of classification, you, you, you tend to, to caricature and say the VC are financially driven and the CVC are strategically driven. The truth is we all want to be both. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a fact. Even the VC want to be some sort of strategic player at mm -hmm. some point, right? So yes, we do have a, um, a very strong focus on financial discipline and financial return. Uh, but at the same time, we want to be strategically relevant to the mothership on yep, the long yep. run. Just, just in the outline that Miriam gave us, really. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Wes Bush, uh, stamp on, on, on this interest at North Grumman. Well, I, I think the one thing you're seeing all in common is it comes from the top, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so Wes running TRW, TRW Ventures when he did uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, saw clearly the, the, the value of investing in and incorporating or ingesting uh, uh, more commercial entrepreneurial technologies, and that's carried through. Um, the models are all different, but I think the one common theme uh, among all four of us, I would say, is that the CEO and the board, with, with the board support, uh, is very entrepreneurial. And, and more so than I think uh, people sometimes give uh, large defense companies credit for. There's, a, mm -hmm. there, yeah, I take your point. There's, I don't mean to say when I talk about dinosaurs, more in mass than in uh, uh, anything Destiny. else, but it's, yes, <laughs> but it's, 
but incredibly entrepreneurial and a lot of very great innovation. But nobody can uh, dispute the fact that the investment dollars going into commercial, uh, particularly sand, you know, I call it steel to sand, defense companies are set up to do steel things. And the, now 80% of the money is spent in sand and spent in silicon. Well, the, the, that money in the silicon, in the IT, and the, the communications, and the, the network of things, and all of that, there's much more money being poured into the sand part of that equation uh, from the commercial environment that we should be tapping into. And I think all four of our CEOs realize that. And so it's not uh, so much a um, uh, that let's figure out what's going on and try to replicate it. Let's figure out what's going on and try to ride it and help our, help our defense customers. Okay, perfect. Um, so I said I, I, I'd be interested in um, uh, your testimonial, if you will, about the, the entrepreneurial um, uh, uh, counterpart, counterparties to your transactions and searches. And, and certainly the immediate impetus for this question is the really interesting, it would have to be said, ambivalence that those four CEOs from Silicon Valley, these entrepreneurial CEOs who sat on this stage last April, expressed toward the defense sector, the defense department, um, investors that had a defense um, uh, interest in their technology. Uh, they, they, each of them, they were here, uh, after all, uh, so that was some testament unto itself, but they also were uh, uh, the, the Mar um, Charvalat, who was the, uh, there was a woman who's the CEO of a company called Savionics, and she was about to uh, go, go do some fundraising in New York, and, and she looked at the camera and said, I hope none of the investors see me here talking about this because it's not going to help me raise money if right. they know I'm interested in yeah. defense. So anyway, what I wanted to draw out from you is what is the, what would it be, reception on the entrepreneurial uh, end of this when, gosh, maybe not a dinosaur, but a big aerospace company comes knocking and says you're, you're interested in something um, because you think uh, you or your customer have a problem they could solve. Um, anybody want to launch into that? Or, or should we just I put think, the baton? Uh, Brett? I, I think I think they're I think they're, they're quite receptive. I mean, I think the the struggle they have is the same struggle that all of the major primes have, which is it takes so long and it's so difficult. You know, it, in the venture world, everyone knows about the uh, Valley of Death, and and I used to refer to the the entrepreneurial spirit uh, of innovation for defense as the summit of death. You know, so you have a great technology that you can identify or you can identify and you find somebody and then then they say, okay, there's, you know, the Department of Defense is not your favorite uncle, but he's your richest. He spends a billion, over a billion dollars a day. And, but to or, in order to sell through, to the Department of Defense, you have to find somebody like us. Um, then you take your product and you start climbing these stairs and you then have to hire some consultants to tell you how the Department of Defense works, and then you probably get some people on your board, and then if you're really successful, you get somebody to take you as a subcontractor, and you pay them a 15% tribute um, in order to run that, that through the contract, and then eventually you can become a prime contractor, um, and if you're a prime contractor, it means you have to have Dell Tech or some cost accounting system that could be verified. So you've spent probably 18 months of the development life cycle doing nothing but process mm. and not innovating at all. And then you fall off a cliff and now you're a defense contractor. So I think what all of us are trying to, trying to figure out is how do we grab those people early in the process and then ingest them into our products and services, take the best that they have to offer, but not lock them up in, in this horrible march uh, to the summit. 
Anybody else want to reflect on your, uh, Pete, uh, yeah, engagement I mean, with entrepreneurs? Sure. So, uh, so a couple of thoughts. I think we, we see it, uh, for us, it's fairly binary. And, and by that, I mean this, that uh, if we go knocking on the doors of an Airbnb or, or, or somebody of that class, I, I really don't think they'd be so interested in, in chatting with us. Right. Uh, on the other hand, though, if, if we go, uh, and, and we've done this quite a bit, obviously, into the Valley or New York or Boston or Austin and other places, and knock on a five or 10 person shop that's got some cool deep learning technology that we're, we think might be able to apply to something we're doing. Uh, we, we usually get the first, well, who's Thales? And then so we have to go through the, well, Thales is, you know, this and then Whatever, we're French, it's okay. Um, but then we, we get over that and, and we get to the point of, oh, by the way, we're in over 60 countries around the world. We touch five of these giant markets uh, where your stuff can apply to every one of them. Uh, virtually every one of our products can use what you do. So would you like to work together? And, and <clears throat> that discussion usually moves pretty quickly from that point forward. Mm -hmm. um, and, and by the way, we, we've got a, a fairly strong balance sheet. That helps too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and, and our last two deals were in the neighborhood of four. Sh show them the money tends to work. Yeah. So. <laughs> So you know, it, it, it's it's talking to those kind of businesses when you can. For us, it's 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 uh, it's less about um, here's how we're going to help you navigate the Pentagon. That, that discussion will clearly come at some point. <clears throat> it's more here's the access. We represent the two things that are most important to you, which is money and access or growth. Mm -hmm. And if we can figure out if we agree that those two things are important to both of us, then perhaps there's reason mm -hmm. for us to carry on the discussion. Chris? I have an, an anecdote. So Great. within the, the first couple of weeks I, I uh, had joined Lockheed, I uh, sat on a, uh, as a judge on a, on a venture panel, right, reviewing cases. We had, I don't know, 25 or 27 companies presenting and just on and on and social networking and mm -hmm. media this. And, <clears throat> and part of the reason I did it was to renew my contacts in the venture community. Mm -hmm. But during the first break, you know, it, it was all social networking based in Nigeria. Software, and software, software. And it's crazy, crazy. Um, but during the first break, three or four people came up to me and said, oh, we didn't know Lockheed Martin had a venture fund. I've got this, uh, you know, this, this security deal or this drone thing or this mm -hmm. cyber thing that just trying to find the access point in there. And I try to talk to the business units, but they don't ever return my calls. It's good to know that you're here. And so, you know, it's, it's not like we've got to go beat people into working in the defense space. There are people that want to work in this, but yeah. they just they have, have no idea how to get into it. And so to, to your point, you know, providing them that, that roadmap and access, making sure they know that we're here is yeah. a big benefit to them. And we get lots of calls. I get lots of calls now from that, that one meeting. You're going to get more now. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. But that's the point. You know, you want to be, want to be visible. And to the, the point you were making, a lot of the deals we've done in the past don't show up on the, uh, mm. you know, on the record. Like nobody knows we're doing this. Mm -hmm. And so part of we, what we have to do is be much more vocal and visible about our activities so that people know who we are, where we are, how to get in contact with us. And these are the things that we like and, and would like to work with you with. Good. This will help, which leads to my last question, after which I am going to take questions from the audience. So be ready to raise your hand, and we'll march through some questions from the audience here. But my last question is apropos of, of, of what you've just said, Chris, and that is pitch us. Uh, tell us, tell us uh, what you're looking for, what size, stage, geography. Is it steel, sand, software? Um, pitch us. It's a big audience. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important audience. Right. <laughs> Good. 
So I think I just want to rebound very briefly on what, what oh, Chris yes, just I, said. No, no, yeah. no, no, no problem. Uh, and it's linked to like pitching. Uh, I think we've seen exactly the same kind of appetite uh, from the entrepreneur community. So there is obviously a renewed interest for aerospace and defense topic. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't probably the case three years ago or That's five true. years ago. It is a case now. Yeah. We see that in Silicon Valley, on the East Coast, throughout the world. The, the theme of aerospace and defense, by the way, is not isolated. It's not one category. It's usually linked to element of IT or automotive application. It's mm -hmm. just very transversal. But this appetite to do something for us, for aerospace and defense, is, is real. Now, the problem is exactly what Chris mentioned uh, and what the panel <coughs> discussed, is the access to the, to, to the big players. It's very complicated to talk to a big Lockheed or, or a big Northrop or a big Thales or a big Abbas Group. But our vehicle, very small, very on the ground, very mm -hmm. uh, human interaction, people you can talk to, people you can interact, are actually a very great gateway back to the mothership and the big debate. So when they come to us, they really ask questions about certification, about technical capability, about test facilities, and we can guide them. And that wasn't uh, easy before uh, for them. So I think uh, literally on, on, on that aspect, there's, there's a shift. And we have the duty to nurture this shift and make sure that these little startups have the playground to develop those technologies. So um, we've positioned <coughs> Airbus Ventures on the, on the seed in Series A, so very okay. early stage. Mm -hmm. We want to take them very early mm -hmm. uh, to guide them on that path, offering uh, the scaling and the access to the mothership. Um, uh, we're chasing technologies that are linked to the future of flight in general. So most specifically, we talk about um, challenges in urban air mobility, connected vehicle fleets, advanced propulsion and system, and digital manufacturing, to make it simple. So it's a lot already, mm -hmm. but it's always uh, something not specific to aerospace and defense. That's what we've seen. Mm -hmm. Those companies address other verticals, not maybe at the same time, but there is like very transversal uh, effect. Okay. Brad, pitch us. Uh, well, I think we're interested in, in I put it into two buckets. One, um, uh, let me start with the transformational bucket, which is uh, in there, the, you know, the list that you would see in any third offset uh, paper you've seen. So the autonomy, the machine learning, all of the things that we are currently investing heavily in, in better understanding, are we investing in it uh, when there are other uh, folks out there who have already figured it out and would our money be better spent applying our resources to encourage them or to invest in them or to uh, ultimately acquire them if that was necessary. So there's that, that bucket, the, 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 the next generation bucket. Uh, there's also a bucket of, uh, given the uh, financial situation that Department of Defense is in, and, and I think regardless we'll be in for some time, of application of new technologies to existing platforms. How can we lever uh, sunk investment in platforms uh, to make them more robust, make them more agile? Uh, that can be communication systems. It could be uh, new, new uh, ways to network them. So it really falls into those two buckets, the, the kind of the third offset bucket, but also the uh, ability to applique uh, new technologies and innovation into existing uh, platforms and capabilities, whether they be ours or somebody else's. Chris, pitch me. Pitch me. Pitch um, us. Pitch us. What are you, what are you looking for? So that, so, so that your phone can <laughs> so ring even more. Yeah. No. So it's a it's a great question, and you know you don't even want to tell people it's defensive. Ah, there's way, that. Right? Yes. Well, yeah. not because I, I scare them away, but when 
you say defense, you think of tanks and ships and battleships and you know and, and fighter jets and so on. But but for me, I, I have to break those down into the components. You know, mm -hmm. what am I going to? I'm not going to invest in an F-35, right? Yeah. Where do I get one of those? No, you you have uh, it. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. We, we all have. Um, but it's the pieces. It's the components of it. You know, from from the materials used to to make the wires on a uh, on a spacecraft, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're so worried about the the swap, the size, weight, power, and cost uh, of the thing, and anything that can do that, or anything that can make our production line more productive, right? Which gets to software and logistics and inventory planning, and you know, not very sexy things, but things that are all developed. You know, you, you look at what Amazon's done for logistics. Well, could we use that inside our, our company as well to improve our costs mm -hmm. and so on? So there are all manner of things like that, from the hard technology to the softer technologies on top of that cyber and so on. But, but anything that, that shows up on a spacecraft or aircraft, whether it's an antenna, a semiconductor device, uh, a radar, a radio, uh, even the glass in the cockpit window, all right? Uh, any manner of things like that potentially has some use in what we're doing. So in a way, there's, there's nothing I haven't looked at that I can't kind of flip over this way and that way and figure out there's some use inside the company somewhere for it. And so it's just the, the matter of finding, like I said before, connecting the dot between this new innovative technology and a, and a known problem or a known area that I need to improve or someone's told me I need to improve and, and making those two things happen together. Um, the, other, the other audience I have to pitch, by the way, is inside the company. Uh -huh. yeah. Right, right. right. <clears throat> and people don't realize that is I have to sell the deal mm -hmm. inside the company too. So I'm selling myself and, and the capability of the company to the uh, to the startup, but then I have to sell the deal internally. So I'm pitching inside as well, the technology, the team of people, their experience, you know, their track record, uh, how this technology works, how it's better than the alternatives, because I, I have to look at three or four, right. uh, to, or you know, to say this is the first one, it's not the first one I met, it's the best one that I've met, yep. that I want you to look at. Um, and as you do that, you realize that you know, Lockheed's got you know hundreds of fellows, right? And and these folks are the the pure research. L folks literally called that, by the way, is that right? Lockheed fellows, fellows. Yeah, fellows. I, I think everyone has yeah. as an equivalent mm -hmm. to that. And you know, they're doing basic research, but part of that basic research is to scour the startup world too. So I have competition, you know, inside the company, looking at startup companies, and I'm trying to get them to talk to me before they talk with them, and and. You know, sign a contract or give a right away or something mm. you know, that maybe would uh, would yeah. be a problem for us down the road if we wanted to have a, a much bigger strategic activity with that company. So I'm pitching both both sides. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. get the, uh, an observation, if I can just uh, uh, make it, is that maybe contrary to I think some of the caricatured expectations of big defense companies relative to the entrepreneurial or, or venture sector is you actually have as much trouble corralling the amount of engagement going on oh, out yeah. there as finding yeah. oh, or yeah, as drawing tons. them out. No, I'll, yeah. I'll go to companies now and say, oh, I saw so-and-so from Lockheed yeah. Martin, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, two months ago. Oh, great. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. The, or somebody say, oh, we have a contract with you guys. And I'm like, what? You know, who? With? So yeah. I'm ha half the time I'm trying to do detective work, yeah. figuring out who's had a touch point or contact with this company and why am I finding out indirectly as opposed to a direct connection with it. So. Yeah. All right, Pete, so after you said we are from France, yeah. um, what's your pitch? Yeah, well, so, well, like Chris, though, we had the, the harder pitch is internal, I'll just say that. Yeah. And I, I won't go into the detail of that except to say it's painful sometimes. Um, the external pitch is, uh, is really, as I, as I spoke about how we do things, which is very project focus, and then bundling sort of how we deploy money around a project. Our, our pitch is, look, um, 
we're going to try and do something together. We have a customer who's already in this loop with us, and, and we use a very much a design thinking sort of approach in how we do things. So customer X is sitting here, and oh, by the way, customer X could be one of the world's leading airlines or one of the largest train networks in the world or whatever it might be. And that, that customer is sitting here. We're going to invest in this technology with you and in that customer. Nobody owes anything, but what comes out the other end is something that all of us can use together. And by the way, as we talked about earlier, we happen to be a world leader in this market that we're, we're investing in here. So what's the benefit for you, the startup? <coughs> hey, you know, it's, no, it's really no risk, but if in a year we have something, then, then we're all going to, the, the high tide will lift all the boats in this case. Um, Usually that works. Okay. Um, I have, uh, you're all aware, looking at your own watches, uh, uh, I'm going to have to start the Q&A with the lightning round uh, because we're, we're down to a short uh, few minutes. But I, I also don't see any hands. But now I see one. Uh, quickly, please, with the microphone. And then this gentleman here uh, will take the second question. Hi, Michael Bruno with Aviation Week Space Technology. Traditional VC in Silicon Valley works in an ecosystem. How does it work with you all? Do you have the favorite Kleiner Perkins or Bessemer Ventures or whoever you partner with try to find these deals? One of you want to grab that, uh, yeah. Chris? Um, I, would, I wouldn't say we have favorites, but it's preferred. I think all of us prefer to partner with somebody. It's called syndicating the risk. We'd rather do that mm -hmm. than do it all our own. Because if we, if we funded the venture entirely ourselves, then it's like doing internal R&D, right. and that's the leverage we, weren't, you know, we wanted to get on it. So we would like to syndicate with other institutional VCs or even maybe even with these guys, but mm -hmm. yeah. who knows. Um, so yeah, we'd, we'd like to, uh, to share. I think uh, that was implied, Miriam, was it not, in your statistics of the A&D yeah. corporate yeah. venture deals is most of them, the, the corporate venture tranche was one of Right. Several tranches yeah. in the deal. <clears throat> yeah. so I think it was about 15% of the right. Right. Yeah. Right. That was the statistic right here. Yeah. And then Hi. the woman in the second row from the back, please. Uh, Jacob Marcus for the Renaissance. Um, I'm going to posit that there's sort of a spectrum of investment types and relationships with the BUs that you guys all have to deal with. One is far field technology which the BUs aren't as interested in, and you have the advantage which of the having what aren't the BUs are not as interested in directly, yep. immediately. Yep. yep, business units. And you have the advantage of agility and speed and sort of um, single point decision of engaging with those companies, but the, the return isn't as obvious, relevance for the company isn't as obvious. The other end of the spectrum is technologies that are very relevant to the business units, the divisions, um, which is great, but the issue might be, as you intimated, there might be some competition from the divisions, and there might be a question of, well, why are these guys in a corporate unit doing this when this is my job? Yeah. How do you balance those two ends of the spectrum? How do you yeah. think about maybe the kind of path from the one to the other? Yeah. I see you nodding. Brett, you want to take well, that I, one? I call this the Q quotient, and we had the same problem when I was in the department, which is companies think quarterly, and our markets think quadrennially, uh, <laughs> long cycles. Um, and so you're right, I mean, uh, th that, that often happens. Usually, I, you guys have probably seen the same thing. When you take it to your business unit or your division, <clears throat> some new technology or capability, they look at it, and if they really like it, uh, what they'll say is, we could do that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I have a whole list of those right, statements. Right. And then, and then you say, well, we did why that, would we do that? Or we did that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that so uh, there is that, that hurdle, and it is, yeah. you know, internally it is, is, is as hard, if not harder, than external, I think, yeah. uh, in yeah. some of the larger, larger firms. Uh, but you have to understand that you, there are 
if you're dealing in a kind of a fit-up cycle, a five-year cycle for the business units, what I think all of us are interested in the technologies, either that can do something very rapidly or that can prepare the company and the organization for something further afield. And, and that middle ground is where it gets hard. Uh, but I think in those two buckets, it's much easier to both convince internally uh, and to shine a light on capabilities and technologies. I mean, when we think about advanced technologies, third offset and things like that, whether it's synthetic biology or other capabilities, these are four, five, six year cycles. They get out of the budgetary planning for any one company or any one business unit because they're too far out. But we, as, as, as company leadership, understand that that's where we need to start positioning ourselves for the next generation of capabilities the customer is going to need. Uh, and so that frees up some space. But that, that middle ground, one year to four year production, is, is hard to sell internally. It's harder to sell internally, I think, than it is externally. I'm just going to add, in, in my little experience in uh, bringing entrepreneurial companies to um, defense contractors, um, this is a critical issue. This yeah. this this timing uh, cycle thing mm -hmm. um, is a is a big issue. I I, uh, I have more than one instance where, you know, you bring you bring a technology to one of your companies. They say we just closed the critical design review last week, yeah. and it won't you know we won't develop this product or right. redevelop it again for five years. But when we do, this right. will be a great thing. You yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take the last question, um, uh, even though I, th I think there may have been some other responses to that. Please. Um, I just, as Marjorie Sensor with Inside Defense, I just wanted to ask what are the metrics that you look at? How do you know if you're succeeding? Um, does it need to be profitable? That's my question. Okay, we'll go right down the line on that, but starting with Pete this time. Metrics. Yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> in the long run, the, the, the number one metric is to grow the top line uh, for what we're doing. Um, so it's probably a little bit different than, uh, than, a, than a VC. It's, in fact, I'm, I know it's different. Uh, that being said, uh, we are interested in return on capital. So what we deploy should generate a sufficient enough return that it's worth our time. Uh, and then I would argue, or not argue, I'll tell you as well, that Talos also sees an intangible benefit coming out of this. And that's something I discussed earlier, which is what is the brand doing in the, in the, in the ecosystem here in the United States and around the world, and how is Explore and in our innovation platform globally, helping to enhance the brand uh, to, to help, of course, the greater Talos do more. I, I put down uh, in my concept of four you know, key benefits. One was the learning. I mean, we haven't talked enough about that, but just the knowledge of the spaces that we look at. Apprend. Apprend, <laughs> learn and teach. But the, you know, when I go to uh, one of the PIs inside Lockheed Martin and say, you know, we've been looking at antenna array companies, for instance, and we've looked at five. And you know, they may have looked at a couple on themselves. They didn't look at five. And we look at the entire space of things on there. So there's knowledge imparted to them, and they may look at more. So there's, and we're trying to do that across all the sectors that we invest in and providing them value that way. I mean, certainly growth would be great if we could do that, but it's hard as a, you know, as a small startup company to say we grew a $50 billion company from, yeah, right. from where we are. We might have been a component in a, in a, a proposal, uh, for instance. That would be great, and we'll keep track of those. Um, but the, the learning, um, being able to help them with gaps in technology, roadmaps, plans, and so on, so bringing those technologies in. But the other thing that is sort of new uh, to at least this, this fund in Lockheed Martin is providing what I call hedges or alternatives, right? 
to answer those yeah. guys who said, right. oh, we can do that. Well, you know, okay, good. Right. I'm going to do this. And if yours doesn't work, then we have this, right? So, you know, the, the focus on mission success is where I'm trying to get people. And does it really matter if you did it or if somebody else did it? If we got the contract, if we got the proposal, then we all win. And so that's a concept that we're trying to rationalize with the folks there as well. So I have those four, four areas to look at. Excellent. That's a great, good question. Uh, so I think, I think one of the benefits of, if you're an entrepreneurial company, of dealing with somebody like us is that we, we're not likely to have a sheet like you would have in a typical venture fund or when we used to work with funds that said, okay, you have to be, you know, the rule is you have to be accretive to earnings on day one or you have to be. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's much more nuanced uh, than that. It, it is, you know, from our perspective, does it add value to what we're trying to supply the warfighter? Can it get us to market uh, more quickly, or uh, uh, and does it provide a differentiation? And and the financial parts of that structure are much more flexible than you would see in a typical uh, venture fund uh, that you deal with, just because we're trying to spread that uh, both the risk and the opportunities across a very wide, large portfolio. Uh, and so that's that would be the other criteria is how 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 can the technology play across the portfolio of opportunities as opposed to just a, a single a single opportunity. So just briefly, so in our case, we we do measure the way the venture capital do measure the financial return. So the very strict return on the money we invest is something we measure because uh, we think it's important to keep track. And I think all corporate venture does that. I mean, it's just a myth that we're not looking at financials. Mm -hmm. We do. Um, now, to measure and get a KPIs on the strategic return, that's a very subjective question. Uh, but I think in our case, the mandate is, is to disrupt the mothership before someone else does. So if I come back to the BUs and I have a discussion and everybody's happy and everybody smile, there's something wrong. I need to have people in the room feeling, you know, a bit shaky and, and things like, this is not okay, you should not do that. I, sh I should sense a bit of uncomfort in, in the way we bring some of the technology back. And that is a kind of KPI that say, maybe I'm on the right track or maybe not. <laughs> but, uh, but that's a bit of the answer. If it's too comfortable, you're probably on the wrong track. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I said um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to I'm going to abide my promise to end at six o'clock. Forgive me. Um, but when we're done here, uh, please um, uh, come up and, and speak to these gentlemen or Miriam if you have a further question that uh, time did not allow for. Um, I'd, I'd mentioned that uh, that this is a bookend of 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 a, of a conversation that started last spring uh, with some entrepreneurial companies. Um, and I think it's been it's been perfect. It has really complemented, filled out uh, a conversation which um, I, I, I will. I, I, I had thought um, uh, had had some wooden caricatured features to it, mostly attributing uh, not not from the government customer so much as as from observers of of of, uh, of this innovation initiative and the outreach to Silicon Valley. Uh, some wooden caricatures of of how the big defense companies are participating in this. Um, and uh, so instead, uh, you know, this conversation, uh, I, I took away the following sort of mottos for how big defense companies are engaging with the entrepreneurial sector. Um, I've, already, I've already invoked one, apprend, uh, ingestion, uh, aperture, uh, and uh, uh, not, not we're from France, but on the edge. Um, working on the edge, right? Those are more like the real, uh, the real life of uh, big companies in aerospace and defense uh, working with the entrepreneurial sector. And um, I appreciate and thank all each of the four of you and Miriam Hawk for bringing bringing these these uh, ideas and insights and uh, and uh, 
uh, defeating, disabusing us of some of these wooden caricatures of how big, big A&D is participating in this to, this to this conversation in this audience. Thank you very, very much. Thanks to all of you for coming.